What's up, y'all? This is Mikey Noshal. And this is Andrew Chapman. Welcome to the Wild Heart Meditation Center podcast. We wanted to let you know that we have a five-day silent meditation retreat coming up September 1st through the 5th, and it's going to be in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi. That's right. You can find all of the information on floweringlotusmeditation.org under Upcoming Retreats, and it is called Peace Within the Wild Heart. It is a five-day silent meditation retreat located an hour outside of New Orleans. It's good for both beginning and experienced meditators. We will have instructional talks, group interviews, and it is just a blast. So come out and sit with us. Yeah, right on. And as always, if you wanted to support Wild Heart Meditation Center and this podcast, please like, subscribe, rate wherever you are listening to this to help people find us. And if you'd like to financially support us through donation, uh, you can do so through Venmo at Wild Heart Nashville. As always, peace and love. I hope you enjoy. So I think we'll jump into the topic for today. I'm continuing a series of talks that both Rachel and I have been giving on the core teachings of the Buddha, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And many of y'all have been along for the ride for many of these uh, Sunday morning sessions. And regardless of what tradition you practice Buddhism in, whether it's Theravada or Mahayana, Vajrayana, you'll find that central to all Buddhist traditions are the teachings of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And the purpose of us giving these talks is really to be kind of educational and instructional. Hopefully at times there are some personal stories and some you know, humor and some inspiration in some of the talks, but if you look through even the oldest recording texts at the way that the Buddha taught his teachings is he was predominantly instructional. I would say probably 95% of the time he's offering instruction. And what I like about this is that the Buddha is saying that here are some practices that you can do. You don't have to believe really anything. You don't have to take anything on faith. But when applied and put into practice, you get to investigate. Does this lead to my welfare, my happiness? Or does it lead to suffering? And so the Buddha's teachings are practical, they're instructional, and we wanted to offer the reflections on the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path to give you all, to give us as a community, a sense of the map. Right? Have, have any of you ever heard of the metaphor of the finger pointing at the moon? You know, it said that in the Buddhist teachings, it's more like a finger pointing at the moon. The Buddha is saying awakening is possible, meaning peacefulness, happiness, a deep meaningfulness to life is possible. But you've got to get there. You've got to walk the path. And he's merely the guide, the, the finger that's pointing at the moon. He can't take you there. And I don't know about you, but I trust this. I mean, I would love to just have someone take me there, to be honest. I would love to just hop on the shuttle and kick back, put my AirPods in, and arrive at Awakening in a few years. You know, but, uh, 
the Buddha also emphasizes the importance of the present moment. He, in this, the religious kind of aspect of the Buddha's teachings is he doesn't really emphasize the afterlife. Sure, he talks about maybe the possibilities of multiple lives and so on and so forth, but what he's always teaching about when he offers those teachings on the afterlife is how important this moment is. Thich Nhat Hanh says, remember that there is only one important time, and that is now. The present moment is the only time over which we have dominion. The present moment is the most important moment because it's completely made up of the past, and it's completely creating the future. So then, what we do in this moment matters in a big way. What we think in this moment becomes the habit energy of what the mind might think tomorrow and what the mind might think the next day. What we say and what we do, these things develop patterns and those patterns get recreated. And through mindfulness, by slowing down into the moment, we can start to see the habit energy of the mind. We can see where it wants to go. We can pull it back from pushing us around all of the time. So meditation, like all of the Buddhist teaching, is it's an instruction in a training. It's a practice. When I first started teaching mindfulness to secular audiences in the mental health field. Uh, the number one thing that I learn about people's understanding of meditation is people tended to think that meditation was an experience. So the number one thing that I would hear from people is that I can't do it. And I would ask them, what is it that you're trying to do? What are you trying to do? I'm trying to get rid of my thinking mind, get it to calm down. I'm trying to have this experience that they guessed that everyone else was having except for them. <laughs> and it's important that we look at it in the opposite way, which is it's a practice. It's not an experience. If we want a calm, still mind, we have to train the mind in that. And it's a training that's intended as a direct path to freedom from suffering, to liberation, sometimes referred to as the highest happiness in life. And the Buddha says this in his teachings on mindfulness at the beginning of a discourse called the Satipatthana Sutta. He says, Monks, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of suffering and discontent, for the acquiring of the true method, for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. So the Buddha is very specific here. He says mindfulness is a training that when undertaken and practiced leads to our deepest welfare and happiness. 
freedom from suffering, unnecessary suffering that the mind creates. Not freedom from pain, not freedom from the worldly conditions that are a part of being in samsara, pleasure and pain and gain and loss and praise and blame and status and disgrace. You can't get rid of the worldly winds, but it's freedom from suffering over those impermanent conditions that we can't control. So today I want to talk about mindfulness and I want to kind of interweave three things together. I want to offer a basic description of what mindfulness is from the Buddhist perspective, how to practice it, and how mindfulness is a liberating practice. Now, whole books have been written about one foundation of mindfulness. Whole books have been written about a part of one foundation of mindfulness. So it's a big topic. And I find that the thing that's really amazing about my practice over time is that it's not that I gather more information. Sure, if I read Buddhist scholars and they talk about different aspects, I can get more intellectual information. But what's been most important to me is that over time, it's like a subtlety, a depth of wisdom that gets developed. Not an intellectual wisdom, but a wisdom that comes through really a refinement of my awareness. The more moments that I'm mindful, the more moments I'm studying my mind. There's a Buddhist teacher named Manindraji that says, if you want to understand your mind, you've got to sit down and watch it. And I put in a few hours of staring at my mind. And it's not like I have this intellectual knowledge that I can just spiritually bypass suffering in my life because I'm a Buddhist and I know what the Buddha said or I read it in a book. It's that I know in an intimate way a familiarity with the patterns and habits of my mind more intimately than I did 10 years ago. So when we're talking about mindfulness as a, one of the path factors of the Noble Eightfold Path, it's the seventh factor. And before each of the eight factors of the Eightfold Path, the Buddha puts this word sama in front of it. So the word for mindfulness in Pali Sanskrit is sati, S-A-T-I. And the seventh path factor is called sama sati. And if you Google the Eightfold Path, you'll probably see a translation of it in English that says right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. But when we're looking at this word sama, what it means, especially here, what it means is something more like complete. So we want to bring our mindfulness into a more holistic way in our lives. We want to incorporate it into more of our lives. We want to weave it into everything we do. We want it to be complete. And for a lot of us, when we come into learning about meditation in the modern American world, I would say that the way that we're taught mindfulness is incomplete. 
And it's not bad. And I want to be really clear on that. I have myself taught lots of incomplete teachings of mindfulness to many different audiences in prisons, with adolescents and addiction treatment, in the public library, even a couple corporations. And I don't think that an incomplete view of mindfulness is bad or wrong. It just is incomplete. And what the Buddha does is he offers a mindfulness, a view of this practice that serves one purpose, which is the complete uprooting of greed, hatred, and delusion. Complete liberation from the unnecessary suffering that's been conditioned and created in the mind. Now, I'm not going to go into a corporate setting and teach them the complete uprooting of greed, hatred, and delusion. <laughs> I could. Maybe they'd be receptive to it. But what I mean by this is there are aspects of mindfulness that when you start practicing it, it tends to take you in a direction, whether you intend to go there or not. I always say the type of awareness you get through practicing mindfulness is not always good news, but it's always good information. So what we first need to understand about wise mindfulness, a more complete picture of mindfulness, is that mindfulness needs to be in the service of understanding what karma is. Now, karma has a lot of watered down, you know, kind of pop culture type of perceptions in our minds. I used to think that karma was like, if you do something bad, you get something bad. Like there's this kind of bank in the sky, and every time you do something, this bank is accruing negative karma, and someday it's going to pay it all out of you full return. And what the Buddha is saying is that was actually the belief of karma at the time. The Buddha didn't come up with this idea of karma. He used it as a tool to emphasize a different point. So karma was already a, almost a scientific understanding at the time that the Buddha lived. And what he did is he changed the emphasis of it. He said that what karma means is that whatever you do has an effect. And the most important thing to know about what you do and the effect is that whatever you think about and ponder upon and mull around on and act on in your thinking mind, that first of all, it creates reactions in your behavior, but then those reactions get fortified and reproduced by your mind. Whatever you think, whatever you ponder upon becomes the inclination of your mind, he said. I call this habit energy. And so what this means is that we have to have an ethical orientation to life. We have to realize that what we do has effect. If you act or speak with a harsh mind, then you're going to view the world harshly. You're going to react to the world harshly. If you view the world as a greedy place, you may become possessive in your thoughts and feel like you need to compete to get ahead, 
and you may start orienting your life around competition and acquiring and possessing and getting and competing and proving and outperforming. And that it all starts in the mind. There are causes and conditions that keep us bound up in suffering. Whatever you do, you get better at. This mind, especially when I first started this practice, was really good at worrying. A lot of practice. Every time something bad could happen, my mind would identify it, obsess about it, worry about it, plan for it, try to predict it, try to anticipate it, try to prevent it. The worrying rabbit hole, right? And so every time I participated in the worrying, every time I followed the rabbit down the rabbit hole, my mind was getting more and more skilled in its neurotic worrying. And mindfulness will actually, I said good news, but not good information, or not good news, but good information. The bad news is mindfulness will actually help you see these conditionings of your mind. You'll see the mind that's bound up in worrying. You'll see the mind that's bound up in comparison. You'll see the mind that's bound up in self-criticism and self-judgment. You'll see the mind that's chronically unsatisfied with this moment because it needs the next moment and it needs it to be better and it needs it to be quicker and it needs it to stay longer and it needs it you know, to be stronger and faster and thinner and smarter and a better version of myself. You'll see the mind that keeps running around, as the Buddha says, in this and that, trying to find a refuge where it can finally be happy. All, or, all the while, the mind that's running around is what's making us un- unhappy. So when we view mindfulness, we need to see that mindfulness is it's kind of an intervention. It's a way to step into the moment and to see what the mind's up to and to, for lack of a better word, to choose to shift the energy of the mind in a different direction to something that leads to more happiness and more welfare. Towards compassion, towards loving kindness, towards forgiveness, towards generosity, towards equanimity, towards stopping controlling or you know, getting involved in fixing and managing every moment and just trying to be at peace with the moment and trying to learn how to respond wisely to the moment. Because that's hard work. Changes every day. So this is what is meant by complete mindfulness. And what is mindfulness? We have this It's very unique Brain. Human beings have this, what neuroscience calls the metacognitive ability. We actually have the ability to observe our own thoughts. That's pretty wild, actually. You are conscious that you're conscious. You are aware of thoughts, that you have them. You are aware of feelings that you have them. You can observe them and you can be self-reflective of your thoughts and feelings. You couldn't sit a slug down on a therapy chair and ask it how it's feeling today, right? 
But we can sit down and say, oh, let me check in. There's tightness in my body. This thing has been happening in my life. I'm noticing fear. I'm noticing my thoughts around that fear are telling me that I'm not good enough and that I won't get the thing that I want. And we can be self-reflective in this really interesting way. And at its basis, mindfulness is the ability to utilize this. It's actually exercising that metacognitive ability. I would say that mindfulness is an ability to tune into the present experience with a purposeful, non-interfering, and investigative awareness. And I'll get to breaking down what purposeful, non-interfering, and investigative mean here in a moment. But basically, mindfulness is an ability to objectively monitor the arising and passing of one's thoughts and emotions, sensations in the present time. To see our thoughts come and go, to see the feelings and emotions come and go, to witness and observe the sensations as they come and go. So the first thing I want to talk about is present awareness. How do you know that you're here right now? I'm asking you. There's no right or wrong answer. Not a trick question, I promise. But how do you know that you're here right now? I can sense it. I can feel myself sitting on the cushion. You can feel yourself sitting on the cushion? Our six senses. Our six senses. She's a Buddhist. She knows the six senses, the thinking mind. All right. Yeah, we can hear it. We can feel it in our body. We can smell it, taste it, see it. We can observe the mind thinking in the present experience. But what's interesting is that we get so caught up in the thinking mind that we can't be aware of the thinking mind. Have you noticed this? We become the thought. The thought is a source of becoming. In the Buddhist teachings on dependent origination, we take birth into these stories that the mind creates. The scariest thing that's probably ever happened to me in my life is a thought. So we fall asleep into the thoughts all the time. It's not our fault. It's just the thinking mind is conditioned. It's conditioned to survive. It's conditioned to try to predict and anticipate future threat. It's trying to find future opportunities. It's constantly assessing based on feeling a lot of the time. If something's pleasant, it means it's safe and I should go after it. If it's unpleasant, it's unsafe and I should get rid of it. And this strategy doesn't really make us happy because there's every moment pleasant and unpleasant things unfolding. And if we're constantly just clinging on to the pleasant ones and craving after them and pushing away the unpleasant, then we're trying to kind of force life to be a way that it inherently isn't because life is pleasant and unpleasant. And so the mind is just a strategy to try to get us to follow that. And so the word sati, mindfulness, actually means, when literally translated, it means to remember. 
And the Buddha taught sati patana, and patana means the ground. Remember the ground you walk on. Remember the ground of awareness where you can see your thoughts, not be your thoughts. Does that make sense? It sounds kind of trippy, but it's really simple, but it's subtle. Remember to step back and observe your thoughts from the ground of awareness, the ground of present awareness, and not get taken into them, into what he calls place. Have you ever noticed your mind wanting to go all these other places with other people? Yeah, sure. Because sometimes ground, I think of as this, but I think you mean like figuring ground, like background and yes, yes. There's, I would say right now I'm kind of talking about yeah, figuring ground in the the ground being awareness, and from the ground of awareness we see these figures of thoughts objects of thoughts and feelings and emotions. So how do we start to see this ground of awareness? It's actually really simple. Find an object that exists in the present experience. Find something that is reliable. Now everything is changing all the time. There's an in-breath and an out-breath. There's a sound that arises and passes away. There's a thought that arises and passes away. There's sensations that arise and pass away. So how do we find a connection with a moment that's always changing? The present moment doesn't exist. It's not a place. It's not a noun. It's a verb. It's an emerging process. So we want to stay in this ground of awareness of the emerging process of the present. We want to keep checking in with the present. And how we do this in, in the first meditation instruction we're given is find a connection with an object like the breath. Feel it where you notice it most predominantly in your body, just like we did today. Connect and sustain your attention with it. And when your mind wanders, notice it. No big deal. That's just what the mind does. That's the conditioning. So now you're noticing the conditioning. Your mind thinks. Cool. No big deal. Then bring your attention back to the breath. Let go of the thought. Surrender that thought. Return back to the breath. And what happens over time is you continue to practice moment-to-moment -moment awareness of, of your breath is your noticings per minute go up. That's what Joseph Goldstein calls them. You're, you're taking snapshots of the present experience. It's like constantly checking in. How is the mind now? What is it doing now? How does it feel in the body now? Is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Or is it neutral now? Noticing it now. This isn't an intellectual thing. It's just a continual checking in with curiosity. And over time, if you can learn at first in meditation to kind of ignore the thinking mind and just keep coming to the breath, you start to develop a stable object. And this can, over time, become quite pleasant and calm. They call it calm abiding. Now, I say like the best calm abiding 
you can really kind of hope to get. This is just for me. I like to set the bar pretty low. Is like a C minus. Because again, we're so much used to chasing pleasant experiences that we're like looking for our meditation practice to be blissful, super calm and tranquil. And in my experience, again, I don't want to dissuade anyone from these experiences if you have them. If you have them, great. I'm happy for you. They are real experiences. Deep, calm abiding can happen. They call it jhana, you know, where there are these deeply absorbed, concentrated states. In my experience, I've only experienced these deep, concentrated states on meditation retreat. So for me personally, I don't really go after them in my day-to-day -day life. I'm looking for C-plus C level concentration. So just a good enough connection with your breath in your body throughout the day. And then what happens? Well, from this place, present awareness, purposeful present awareness, you start to observe. This is investigative awareness. You start to see what is the nature of the mind and body. And y'all, this category goes really deep. What is the nature of this mind and body? There are really two answers here that the Buddha offers. He says the nature of this mind and body is that it is uh, arising dependent on conditions. So because you have a body, you have feeling. And because you have a body and feeling and a mind, you have perception. And because you have a body with feeling and perception, you have impulses. And because you have impulses, you act. And because you act, you reinforce impulses. And there's this kind of cycle. This goes into kind of deep Buddhist psychology. You don't need to know any of this stuff. It just kind of happens. But the thing to know is that one of the things you start to be aware of is things happen in a cause and effect way. And I'll give you an example of how you've probably noticed this so it doesn't feel like some heady thing. Have you ever been driving down the road and you start to feel an afflictive emotion, just like really down or sad or really afraid or just really upset? And you have that moment of awareness where you're just like, how did I end up here? Like I, did, I, I, wasn't, I don't even know how I got here. I just have this feeling. And then you kind of trace it back. You're like, oh yeah, my friend called me and then I started thinking about our other friend that passed away and now I, I had had beef with them before they passed away. And Oh, and now I'm feeling sad and angry and upset because I had that thought and that thought led to this feeling, right? And you can start to watch in mindfulness, you can start to see how one thought can lead to another thought that provokes another feeling that leads to another thought, and the Buddha calls this the monkey mind. It just kind of swings from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. So one of the insights we develop that we're investigating is you're actually trying to watch how your mind moves from one thing to the next. And the other thing, and, and this is equally as important, is we're trying to investigate the impersonal nature of the mind. That the mind is not who we are. 
that often actually a lot of our suffering is created because we overly identify with our mind as ourselves. And we, and we actually can see that the mind is conditional, that on the days when I feel good, I'm doing good. On the days that I feel bad, I'm doing bad. But it's the feeling that's dictating that story about how good or bad I'm doing a lot of the time, isn't it? So we have to break out of this identification with the thinking mind. And we have to start to see thoughts as just thoughts. Anger is anger. Fear is fear. Sadness is sadness. It's not mine. It is happening. We're not bypassing or disconnecting from what's happening. We're just not attaching our identity to it. This is... I think very practical, but it's quite a big insight that starts to develop through meditation practice, is if you just watch your mind over time, you practice mindfulness every day, 30 minutes a day for three months, go sit a retreat, you start to see that the mind is very impersonal. It just kind of does what it wants to do, but that there's this awareness this ground of awareness that can observe it happening. Very impersonal process of mind. And we start to see that with investigation that the mind is impersonal, that the mind and the body are impersonal. Believe it or not, the body ages. We try to resist this. Well, I'm not attractive anymore. I lost my hair when I was 18. My least favorite thing about my body are my teeth. And not because of how they look. I just hate teeth. They're so expensive. And they just suck. I told my dentist, I was like, can you just fucking knock them out and put metal teeth in there? And she's like, you wouldn't want that. And I was like, it's because you make all the money off of my teeth. Unreliable, impersonal, but causal. There's a cause-effect relationship. If I take care of my teeth, they're more likely to stay around a little bit longer, right? But they're inevitably going to decompose. They take a long time. Teeth are very stubborn. But everything, actually, every aspect of our experience of our body and mind is impermanent and impersonal. But when we, and it's not an intellectual thing, but when we aren't mindful, we start to take the body and the mind personally. We start to get lost in its stories. We start to crave permanence in things that are impermanent. Simple examples of this. You know, whenever you get a flat tire, it always feels like it shouldn't be happening. But guess what? Causes and conditions, you ran over a nail, it happened. There's a causal relationship why you got a flat tire. There's a causal law. The world said, well, if you drive over a nail, physics dictates that you're probably going to get a flat tire, right? But then when it happens, the mind, this is the thing that the Buddha's interested in. He's interested in the mind's reaction to these things. This shouldn't be happening. I just bought that tire. 
and I didn't get the fucking insurance on it. And of course, it feels like the universe is doing it to me. It's a cruel joke. You ever feel that way? Now, of course, in those moments, you never want a Buddhist chirping in your ear saying, it's impermanent and impersonal. It's going to piss you off. <laughs> so you want to be the one that's chirping in your own ear saying, Andrew, okay, take a breath. No amount of reacting to this situation is actually going to add to it. It's not going to change what's happened. So how do I want to show up? Opening the heart. Okay, there's frustration. Not meaning that you shouldn't be frustrated. Be present with the frustration that's arising. Notice it. Try not to take it personally. It's frustration. It's here. It makes sense. It's a natural response to these situations. How can I slow down, bring compassion to myself in the moment, breathe, relax? You see, we talk about acceptance a lot, but acceptance isn't an event. It's a process. So we have to get on the train. You know, you got to get on board with acceptance. And it, and it takes a while to get there. But mindfulness will help you. It will help you slow down. It will help you say, okay, right now it's like this. Being with the unpleasant experience, opening the heart with compassion, slowing down. I don't have to react. I don't have to yell at the AAA person that doesn't want to change my tire on the side of the road. All right, that's upsetting too. I've got to reschedule my day. That's upsetting too. I had things to do, but right now it's like this. I've got to get on the train with acceptance. It doesn't mean that the present is pleasant. It means that the present, when it's unpleasant, we try to accept it. We try to be with the unpleasant, which brings me to the third aspect of mindfulness. So we investigate the impermanent, impersonal nature of experience. And we try to develop this word equanimity. Here I said non-interfering. I don't know, I change my word around this in the definition a lot. Uh, some people say a non-judgmental awareness. And I think that that is good, especially in the beginning, because we tend to identify with our mind so much that when it wanders during meditation, you judge it and you think it shouldn't be happening. But once we get over that hump, we've got to look at a, a deeper level of what we're talking about. We're not just talking about not judging. We're actually talking about developing equanimity, an ability to be with whatever's happening without getting pulled into it and without pushing it away. The word for equanimity in, in Pali Sanskrit is upekka. And upekka means there in the middleness, being there in the middle of your experience. Y'all, this is something that you cannot arrive at intellectually. I try all the time to explain to people how important it is to try to let things be and to accept things as they are. But it is actually a felt experience. It's an experience of surrender. It's a letting go that happens when we slow down. We soften the body and we let things unfold. Equanimity, by definition, means the ability to allow thoughts, 
feelings, emotions, sensations, to allow, I call them sensory events, to come and go without push and pull. It's an inner balance that we develop between the extremes of pushing the sensory experience down, like trying to suppress it, Right? Whenever you deal, have conflict or something unpleasant that's happening, the mind will very cunningly figure out a lot of ways to put it aside, to distract from it, to push it away. Mindfulness, this is the reason why I'm not a big fan of teaching mindfulness too incompletely, is mindfulness is not this pleasant abiding. There's an aspect of developing peace. But peace means being with what is without reaction, without needing it to be different, without interfering in it. And that is a when the rubber meets the road kind of practice. Why would I want to sit down and be with my sadness, I feel, or the anger I feel, or the grief I feel? Well, if you have a daily meditation practice, you're kind of signing up for it. So why is it so hard to develop a consistent meditation practice? Well, because your mind is very cunning. It doesn't want you to sit down every day and be with unpleasant feelings and unpleasant thoughts and regret that comes up. That's why I was genuine when I was saying, good news is that you have awareness, that you're willing to see it and sit with it. It's more than half the battle. So equanimity requires courage. So it's a balance between kind of the tendency we have to push away or distract from or avoid or suppress unpleasant feelings. And the other end of the extreme is kind of getting pulled into them, getting caught up in the drama mind. One of my teachers, Ajahn Suchito, says the mind field is a minefield. The explosions of greed and hatred and delusion. And so we step back and we observe. And this ground of awareness, right? If we take it back to the beginning, there's this ability to shift and to become aware of the thought and the feeling. And to just, they call it abide. The Buddha uses this word abiding. And for me, abiding is like keeping the company of something. Whether you like it or don't like it or whether it's neutral, you abide with it. So I feel like one of the easiest ways to to understand equanimity is it's like, you know, like Rumi's poem, The Guest House, right? Everything is a visitor into your heart and mind. And your job is just to invite, invite whatever's here to be here. And this has been studied, you know, the capacity that we have, that our nervous systems have to expand our window of tolerance, right? Daniel Siegel talks a lot about this, if you want to look at some of the research behind this. We can become more comfortable being uncomfortable. That's a weird thing to think about. But it's not just distress tolerance. There's actually a deeper layer to it. It's compassion. Opening our heart to what's painful. And it's non-attachment. It's opening our heart to what's pleasurable without 
grasping. This is equanimity, and I think that this is really the ultimate goal of mindfulness, is to develop an ability to make peace with what is. So I want to read as a final quote, a quote by Ajahn Chah from his teachings in A Still Forest Pool. He says, try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surrounding, like a still forest pool. All kinds of wonderful animals will come and drink at the pool, and you will clearly see the nature of all things as they come and go. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha.